Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. You talk about an interview. This is one of those that could go on and on. In fact, it does. I'm going to have this guy back. It was so good. I'm talking about Bob Guccione Jr. Now, you might remember Sr. He started Penthouse. But Bob Jr. is just as well-known and did some of the most iconic magazines you've ever seen in your life in gear discover and and now he's leading wonderlust a very uh, a site that's just dedicated to luxury travel interesting travel i it's one of my favorite sites and he's become a really good friend and we have a lot of insights and a lot of a lot of secrets that come up in this episode which really make it kind of nice so so tune in and listen and welcome bob guccione jr of wonderlust Hey, Bob, the first question I have to ask you, have you reinvented yourself a number of times? I mean, you ran Spin Magazine, you ran Gear Magazine, and you've even been a university professor at the University <laughs> of Mississippi, which, by the way, that's a whole other question, line of question I'm going to get into, because Excellent. how the hell did you get to Mississippi? You don't look like a Mississippi boy. So when, when do you know it's time to pivot and start the next phase of your career? You know, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the truth, the honest truth, I do not know. I've um, pivoted more naturally than that. I got, I know it sounds terrible to say I got a bit bored of spin, but I got a bit bored of doing the same yeah. thing. And I, I, uh, I get that way. I get, look, I've held Fortune 100 jobs and I get bored. It's like, yeah, yeah. I did it. I did yeah, it. I mean, you know? yeah. It took me 12 and a half years to get to that point, but, but I did. I wanted to do something new. Then gear came along. That was a new and exciting challenge. That grew out of the, the failed attempt to bring a magazine to America from Italy called Max, which mm-hmm. would have preceded the whole you know, lads movement. I never wanted Gear or Max to be a lads magazine. I wanted to be an upscale, smart men's magazine. But um, we didn't make that deal with Rizzoli in the end. So I decided my own called Gear and I pursued the same uh, template I had. And then, you know, you left out Discover, one of my favorite ever ventures. Oh, yeah. yeah. I put together financing. We bought Discover from Disney. It was falling like a stone. When we first started talking to them, they were losing 300000 a month. By the time we actually consummated the deal, they were losing over half a million a month. Wow. And when we bought it, I said, well, where are the advertising contracts? I don't see them. And they said, oh, there are none. We have no ads. <laughs> so we literally started from zero. That was a great time in life because I've always been intrigued by science. I helped my dad launch Omni in the late 70s in a, in a circulation and marketing role. But I was always, always intrigued and always wanted to get back into science. And Discover remains one of my favorite things. I turned it around. It was, um, as I said, obviously falling very badly. And uh, within 90 days, we were profitable. Within two years, we were one of the leading magazines on the newsstand and, um, you know, in ad, ad growth. So that was a great time and a lot of fun. Does it, does it surprise you? Because I have a lot of young people ask me this question. They go like, well, how did you know what your path was going to be? Or, you know, did, how did you plan out your, your career, your, the way you were going to do this? I'm going like, what the hell are you talking about? I've never planned any of this stuff. It just kind of pops up. I never really thought about planning it. Um, yeah. Only in retrospect do I look back and go, oh, I could have done this, I could have done that. Yeah. And I think it's a rich life when you, when you have all these doubts, by the way. I know that sounds um, counterintuitive, but I think... No, I think that's I true. Think yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it is because I think you say, wow, you know, I had all these options and, and I still have the imagination to imagine what trouble I would have got on if I'd gone left rather than right. But 
I've had a very fulfilling career, I must say, very exciting and often very, you know, uh, stressful and frustrating because I still believe in the power of storytelling. I still believe in the, the value of real journalism. Journalism now has become so utterly polarized. Even, even the, the guys you would expect the best work from are beginning to fray the edges. And on the internet, certainly journalism is not prized. It's not even valued. Yeah. The truth is not at, at all a virtue on the internet. It's, 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 all, become, it's all become mostly clickbait, right? Well, that's, that's not even the harmful stuff. The harmful stuff is the outrage and the indignation and the hate and the spite. That stuff predominates. You know, the stuff that gets the most viral clicks is when one tribe likes the way someone put down the other tribe. And that's terrible. That's sad. You know, the internet is this glorious, glorious, glorious opportunity for the best of things. And yet it brings out and saturates us with the worst of things. Do you, think the, do you think the worst is going to overshadow the best? Well, it is currently. Yeah. I think ultimately it won't. I think ultimately human beings are kind of self-correcting. They don't want to waste their time. They want to actually spend their time somewhat purposefully and even productively. And so no matter what, where on the social strata, you could be a bass fishing fanatic. And you eventually want to find the best bass fishing editorial and the best bass fishing instruction. Or you can be an intellect and want to um, only read what the biggest minds in science and the arts are saying. And that's the other end of the scale. And ultimately, you go to the best of that. So um, I feel always that quality does win um, because it's self-selected. The, 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 the audience eventually selects the quality. So I have faith in it. I just did an interview with Media Post in which I um, argued with the guy who I love, uh, the editor of Media Post. And I, I said, you know, we just have to have faith. That's what no one talks about. You have to have faith in yourself. As creators, you've got to believe the audience ultimately is smart enough to distinguish when you're doing a good job. And I, I've resisted clickbait. I do resist it. I have no time for it. And I think it is, its days are numbered. And, and that's actually beginning to be borne out in the, um, the trades when people are talking about the buzzfeeds and the vices having real problems. You know, Bob, I think it's kind of like the old West days. You know, you got the good guys. And mm -hmm. the good guys don't, when, when the bad, they're in the middle of the street and they're, it's the 1880s and they're in Deadwood and they're in the middle of the street and the bad guy's trying to call out the good guy and the good guy's just ignoring them. And then he, the bad guy comes over and slaps them and, and it, it kind of has to happen for a while until the good guy just gets pissed off enough to where he, the pendulum's going to swing back enough. And I think I think that's yeah. kind of what you're describing. I and I think that's a that's a great analogy to use. The good guy's got to get mad enough and let it you know let it go until it gets too far out, and then they go, "Hey, that's enough of that crap." Just like you do with <laughs> your kids, you know, you let your kids fight to a certain point, and then you go, "Hey, hey, hey, that's enough of that," you know? Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Hey. Absolutely. Yeah, so let me talk. I mean, did you get? I, I got so much I want to talk to you about Spen. And of course, you and I have become buddies. We we we, we sit in a couple of Irish bars together now and drink. Absolutely. Gosh, so That's, which I really enjoyed because right after you and I met, we you know we realized, oh my gosh, we're going to be good friends. And exactly right. And but by the way, folks, listen in. We've only met twice face to face, and we talked on the phone once before. And you know, I'm going to put Bob up there as one of my my really good friends because we just have a good time together. Likewise, thank you. And, yeah. and Scotch helps. Yeah, Scotch always helps. It does. <laughs> yeah, Scotch always you know, helps. It also, also weeds out the bad people. You don't want to drink Scotch with somebody you don't like. Well, that's exactly right. Because the other night you you were drinking blue, and at you know sixty seventy dollars a glass. Yeah. You, you know, and I'm buying. I want to make tab. sure I'm with somebody that I, I, I like. So absolutely. So on my tab, we'll be drinking like you know 
the other stuff. Yeah, um, we had Glenn Levin or something, which I don't call scotch. But anyway, let's just go to another thing. We want to just move on. Uh, you mentioned your dad. You mentioned you work for your dad. And, you know, it's always, I always am hesitant to bring up people's parents who have been really famous. But in this case, I want to. Did you get a love of the magazines from your dad? Absolutely. Yeah. You, know, you asked earlier about a plan. There certainly wasn't a plan to my life. In fact, the great criticism from everybody who shared my life with me is, when, when are you going to get a plan? Um, <laughs> so it takes a good woman to stay with me. And I have mm-hmm. a great woman who stayed with me for 16 years. So she's got all the virtue. That's but, awesome. But I have never really been one to have a plan until I actually seriously needed to map out a business plan. I was nonetheless pretty much pushed in the direction of magazines by virtue of my father being in the business and my admiring him so greatly and, and loving him and, and loving the business. And the excitement around it was palpable. And so from a very early age, from my you know, very earliest teens, I was excited by the process and looking forward to getting into it. Ironically, when offered to run Penthouse, when it was one of the biggest publishing companies in America, literally bigger than Condé Nast and up there with Hearst and Time Inc., I, I turned it down because I wanted to do my own life. And I realized that if I just worked at Penthouse, ran it, by all means, tripled it, quadrupled it, whatever. I would never have done my own thing. Yeah. So I told him one day, I said, I'm going to start this rock and roll magazine. It's, it's smaller. It'll never be the size of, of your company. It doesn't matter. It'll always be mine. And yeah. uh, ultimately, he respected that, uh, though we fought a lot over it. In fact, in fact, we had an 18-year split when we didn't talk, unfortunately, sadly, over that fight. But at the end of the day, we, we did reconcile a few years before he passed away and we became very close again. And, you know, he, he mentioned that he'd always respected the fact that I had strove to, to strike out and, and do my own life and have my own life. Having said all that, I, I, I must impress upon everybody listening to this. I have nothing but 100% admiration for my dad. I was never, ever once less than, you know, on his side. I was never once ashamed. Well, he's your dad. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's your yeah. dad. It's just like, you know, but there's nothing wrong with it. Son, not, yeah, look, I don't want my children both work in the business with me, but I try to let them have their own life, their own thing. I'm excited to have them, but if they chose to go off and do some other thing on their own, man, more power to them. Let me help them, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely correct. That's the right attitude. Yeah. And, uh, you know, look, none of us are perfect, um, but we all falter in our most important relationships from time to time, but well, the important thing is how you wind up. And we wound yeah. up very, very close at the end. Well, it's, it's especially tough when you got families and you're working with families because it's just like I tell people when I'm you know back home in South Dakota and people say, Jeff, why aren't you speaking? Why aren't you giving more speeches back home? And I go, hey, too many people see me naked at the Y, you know? So, you know and, and the same thing the same thing with families, which what I mean by that, we see all the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. And, and so that makes it tougher and it makes it a little bit. Listen, hey, we got to take a quick break. We're going to come back because I've got to ask you another question. I, I want to know if you, if you had any of those stories that were written about in form, if any of those were yours. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll be right back. (laughs) C-Suite Radio. Okay, hey, we're back. I, I, I joked before the before the break that what a cool thing it would be to find out. Did you were those stories real or do people write just make them up? Well, let me let me answer I'll answer that for you. Um they were real. Yeah. And Actually, you should have, I always say you should have seen the ones we didn't publish. Oh, my gosh. Really, hey, for really, you young people who are listening don't know what we're talking about on, on the penthouse, penthouse forum. These were, these were the, the front of the magazine, and these were the stories that people would write about hookups or things that would happen sexually. Mm-hmm. And, and it was just, it was just, it was like, it was voyeurism at its best. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, was, no pictures. Was, there were no pictures, by the way. It was no, just story. No, what happened was, what happened was these letters would come in unsolicited, and we decided, or my, I, I was too young. I was, I was working in the mail room at 16 when this happened. But, Yo, I'm uh, sure you were still reading them back then, though. Oh, yeah. Come on. No, no, absolutely. And my, my father uh, decided, well, let's run a, a sort of, it was like a precursor to the internet community. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. And these people had an outlet. Some of the stuff was a bit, bit extreme. I'll give an example. At one point, somebody started writing about having a sexual fascination for people who are missing limbs, which I thought was very perverse. Yeah, My dad, just, you know, it's not perverse just, to them. Yeah. And he let them have, to his, to his credit, he let them have their say, along with the people who said, you know, I was on a plane and I stood, I took people to the bathroom and we had yeah. sex. I doubted those stories. All this. I don't think they were all true. But um, no, basically, I've, seen, I, I've actually seen that. I've, I have to actually, I've seen that. I've seen, I've actually seen that happen. Well, I've always wanted it to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Different thing. All right. Yeah, hey, listen, let's, 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 let's spin this. Let's spin this. I want to talk about spin because we could, we could, sure. we could do a whole show just on Penthouse. But you ran spin for a number of years and music publications aren't quite what they used to be. In fact, I think after you left spin, it, it changed. I think everything changed, not just because yeah. the internet changed, the behavior started to change. So have these kinds of publications been able to adapt to the challenges that we're currently facing in the industry? I mean, are they as big an influence today as they were, say, 20 years ago? You know, to be on Rolling Stone, to be in spin, that made a difference. Do you think that makes a difference today? No, I don't think it does because the magazines atrophied and they gave up their, um, their hard-fought ground as, as the centers of honest journalism for a whole generation. You know, Rolling Stone... Well, they were culture icons, too. Exactly. Well, I mean, Rolling Stone, yeah. I, I, I always deeply respected Rolling Stone, even though I competed with it before with it and ultimately passed it. The thing about Rolling Stone was it spoke for its generation. The thing about Spin was it spoke for its generation, which was the next generation to come along. Now we call it Generation X, but at the time, it was just young people. And we were honest with the audience. We did fantastic investigative reporting, stuff that was far more read than our music reporting. But our music reporting was good and, and honest and critical. And, you know, we, we discovered along with the readers, I think that was a great success. It was organic. Mm -hmm. We didn't know the answers either. Now, a lot of today's media pretends it knows all the answers, which is a mistake in every category. But certainly the music magazines have lost their importance, partly because now everything is available online and, you know, it's that's diffuse to the, the spread of information. But greatly, the magazines have lost their, their importance because they've allowed themselves to become irrelevant. I hate to criticize Spin. I haven't owned it for 20 years. Um, so I'm long, long removed from the current owners. I don't even know who the current owners are, actually. They bought it from the last people I knew. You know, I think they've just simply become, you know, a bit generic, a bit gutless. They don't take chances anymore. And that's what's important in a music mm -hmm. magazine is to go beyond music and take chances. Rolling Stone's the same. They, they do a little more of the investigative journalism to their great credit, but everybody's clickbaiting. Everybody's following numbers. Everybody's pursuing the sort of, you know, yeah. magic dragon of, of metrics. And, and I think that's a mistake because when that's all you have and when the, when the birds on the wing of the audience, you know, they shift like birds on a wing, you don't have a foundation. All you had was clickbait. So, I don't mean to be too critical of all the music magazines. There's a lot of them out there besides Spin and Rolling Stone, and they are doing some great work. I just think they all need to have a little more, you know, balls and, and, and yeah. go after institutions and stand up for their audience. 
this isn't a game of clicks. I, as much as everybody says it is, I don't care. If you if you focus on hearts and minds, you'll get the clicks. That, that's and, what I say. Yeah, you get the right ones, and and you'll do it. Pick it. You know, in the last book I wrote, the Hero Club or Hero Factor, I write pick a side. I don't give a damn what your position is. Just pick one. Yeah, and stick, great and stick point. To it. You know, I look. There's things that I I'm sure in our friendship, Bob, you and I aren't going to see eye to eye. I'm okay with that. You're still going to be my friend. Yeah, no, I'll, still, I'll still call you a crazy, you know, you know, I probably don't want to say it here because I want to get a run of the red mark on my podcast. But, <laughs> you know, let me let me ask you, what was the best interview you ever did to date and which one do you wish you'd have done? Oh, great question. Well, the, well, the, the best, I did many interviews, Jeff, as you know, and maybe your audience doesn't realize that although I ran, you know, I started spin, ran it. Yeah, you didn't do, you, you had other people doing that stuff. Yeah, but I also, no, no, but I also personally have done probably two or 300 interviews. Oh, I didn't know you'd do that many. I would assume oh, that. Yeah, yeah I, I would assume. One. I would have assumed that you would have had other people do them. So well, I did, mostly, of course. Yeah. Most of the done by the writers. But even though I ran the business, I always, always wanted to do, you know, a lot of stories. And I wrote a lot for, the, for all my magazines. So I've done interviews for all of them, including the science magazine. But um, my favorite interview, without a doubt, was the Dalai Lama. I, I interviewed him in India. And wow. I liberally went to India because I didn't want that sort of, you know, cookie-cutter... 15-minute interview. Yeah, in sitting in a hotel ain't the same, right? With no, him. so I was with him yeah. in, his, in his house in Damsala, India. McCloy Gunj is the actual village. He would and have been a lot younger then. I was. I was. I was well, you life. were, but he would have been too. I mean. Yeah, yeah, he was in his 50s. Now he's getting up there in his 80s. Yeah. But it, but it was a great interview, and he went on for two and a half hours. And finally, the llamas literally were dragging him out of the room because. Why, why, it, was, it, why was it so good? Uh, because we connected on a level that was more spiritual frankly than yeah. anything I didn't, I didn't ask him the usual questions that everybody had warned me going in was yeah. about it um but i asked him questions like can a spiritual man be ambitious because that was me i was talking about yeah and i'm a catholic and i'm certainly you know I, I try to be a good catholic um and i'm certainly a conflicted catholic and he 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 responded very well to questions like that so we talked a lot about the human spirit not just i would, I would have thought he and i bet you he said you could be Yes, he did. Yeah, he I mean, he understands. Yeah, he's a pretty smart guy. I met him a couple of times. And, you know, you are taken back by his his calmness, his sense of being very centered. Well, I also just discovered about him, rather, rather, I discovered afterwards that the uniqueness of the experience was that he is the only person I've ever met who is 100% in the moment. Mm. You know, there are people, you, you're very present. I'm very present. But... He was 100%. It was, it was an elevated level of presence mm-hmm. and um, awareness of the moment. And that, that was great. The, the interview I wish I'd done, that's a great question because there's so many. I would love to have interviewed Neil Armstrong, although everybody said he was actually a very, very boring interview. He didn't really want to talk. Uh, I would love to have interviewed Bruce Springsteen. I never did. Never got a chance. Uh, Bruce would be good. Yeah. I, I think Springsteen's a fascinating, iconic character. There are several. I never interviewed Bob Dylan. I would like to have done. But if I had to pick, it would be between Armstrong, Neil Armstrong, and um, I would have loved to have interviewed Springsteen. Yeah, I think. I know little Steve. I think the favorite would be Queen of England. Uh, You know, she'd be fun, wouldn't she? Hey, let's take a quick break. Hey, hang on. Hold on. I want to ask you why. And I have my own things on that. Let me take a quick break and come right back. That was a great commercial. Good break. I, I got to. I got to make money. You know, I got to make money. It was, as we're it, was a, it was a moving commercial. It's a moving commercial. Thank <laughs> you. So, 
what what about well i got great partners so they're good partners so i like any and and, and i love the partners that pay me that's a, that's how that's the ones i love the best they're, they're the best people in the world yeah why would you want to interview the queen the queen is fascinating listen i'm not a royalist i actually am against the royalty and i always was when i lived in england i grew up in england as you may have gathered from yeah oh yeah really <laughs> seriously we got this british voice with an <laughs> italian name okay <laughs> i'm not unique in, in england there are millions of italians in england um but you know, I was always against the royalty, even as a boy, as this is ridiculous. And I grew up in post-war England in the 60s. Mm. Uh, so it was utterly conflicted time and, a, you know, discombobulated time is a better way of putting it. But the Queen was the centerpiece of, of British life. And I, I always thought, why? <laughs> you know, we're, we're supposed to be no, no longer, a, you know, a, a royalty-based country. Right. But And I've only, only grown in that impression. And I think... The royalty in England is ridiculous and, and, and it's a fraud. Um, and the notion that tourism revolves around it is ridiculous because there'd be more tourism if they could actually go to Buckingham Palace. But anyhow, putting all that aside, the Queen herself really is a resolute, iconic figure. And I'd love to hear what she thinks about all that she has seen. She was Queen in 1953. Oh, you know, yeah. So yeah. she had seen the evolution of the, the world um, from, from... From Elvis Right, exactly. I mean, my gosh, you think about the change that she's occurred, but she's always been a calming figure, which I think is kind of unique. I think she's going to, I, I'm a real, a, you know, I've read a lot about the about royalty and monarchy, and um, I've always been a historian. So I think she's going to turn out to be a very calming figure and one that's going to bring, she's brought a lot of class back to it, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, she's probably also going to be the last British royal anybody pays any real attention to. Thereafter, it's going to be kind of a, you know, celebrity island kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, I don't think modern England, which is, you know, going through its own turmoil right now with Brexit, I, I don't think they really care about royalty. I think they sort of care about the way they care about their national football team. She, she will be the last of the great iconic royals on the planet, I think. And I, I think, I think, I think that's probably true. Hey, yeah, I, I want to, we, we only got about, about another five minutes left, but I want to get into, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I have to, because I want to talk about your newest venture, which is Wanderlust. And you, know, you sent me a, a link the other day. Hey, Jeff, check this out because, you know, we're always sharing stuff and it, mm -hmm. it's your anniversary. Just had a big anniversary and in the hundred, hundred best places I think in the world to travel. And it was fun to see that I've been to a few of those. Oh, good. And, yeah, which was kind of cool. But there, there's some that I, I hadn't been and I thought, oh, this would be cool. Like like Skull Island. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, saw yeah. that one. You know, and, we did, um, it was our second anniversary uh, yeah. the other day. And we published the Wonderlust 100, yeah. the 100 most interesting places to go and, and things to do in the next 12 months. And I wanted the list to be not a listicle. I wanted to be, I wanted to deliver. I wanted it to be something you dip into over the course of any amount of time and read the entries. And every single one is, um, you know, really thoughtfully chosen. It goes from the world's shortest flight, which is 57 seconds. I, that's the other one I'm doing. I, yeah. I, you can either take an hour and a half and drive it up in Scotland, or you can fly it in like as short as 50 some seconds, right? Yeah, 57 seconds, yeah. And uh, and then there's, you know, that. And the, the, one of the ones I loved, I, didn't, I knew nothing about it until my a contributor sent in the item was Iraq Alamea, which is a, a women's collective in Jordan. The idea that there'd be a, a you know a powerful, empowering women's collective in Jordan creating uh, you know products and, and and food and you know living together and growing well it was just revelatory, you know, to see that in the Middle East. 
and there, there was just so many wonderful places. Then, you know, we, we went from the gamut. We went from Amman in Venice, which may be the most luxurious hotel in the world. Yeah. To um, my favorite place uh, is this converted convent from 1212 that's a drug rehab in Italy. That's the best restaurant I've ever been to in my life. And I've been all around the world. And every single person who works there is a recovering addict. And they have a 1% recidivism. 99% of people are cured and never at addicts again. It's a phenomenal place. We, and nobody's heard of it. No, nobody, because we keep writing about it. Everybody's hearing about it now. You know, that, well, why that, travel? Why did you, why, why travel? Why, why, I mean, you've, you've gone, you had science, you had the art form of the human body that you worked with for a while. And then, then of course, you started spin, so you had music. Then you go to gear. Then, then, then you go to discover, you go to, you know, I'm sure there's other stuff in between here and there, but you were mm-hmm. doing lots of other things. But you go from science. Now, why travel? Well, travel is primal. Travel is essential. I always say that the first story ever told was a travel story. They uh-huh. had to be because someone said, let's go here, not there. No, uh-huh. Otherwise, we'd still be in a cage. Someone had to say, we should go here because there's food. We should not go there because there's danger. In some form of language that the other people in the cave understood and followed. And that was the first, you know, delivery of valuable information in a narrative. And so it is that essential to us. You know, we're always moving, always constantly um, intrigued by somewhere else, always constantly inspired by going somewhere else. There, there are travelers who travel all the time. There are people who travel intermittently or rarely, but nonetheless, we all travel every day somewhere. And we all encounter, even if it's in our own little town, we encounter something yeah. new every day. Yeah, so travel, I mean, you travel, you travel to work, right? I mean, even yeah. if it's a walk, I'm in New York, I only have to walk a block and a half, but it's a travel and I can choose a block and a half and go a couple different ways. And Well, you say that, but you, you, you actually really do travel more than anybody probably I know. Yeah. You're always on the road and you're always going to new places, but you don't have to just go to lots of places to be, you know, uh, inspired, you can read about cultures and people and food yeah. and cuisine and uh, you know gorgeous landmarks and terrain and and visit it that way. You know, when I was a kid growing up, the most influential magazine to me was not Penthouse. You know, I always I always tease people and say I was the only nine year old boy in the world who was punished for not reading Penthouse because <laughs> my dad used to tease to say, "Why aren't you reading Penthouse?" Like, well, I'm not interested. But I was interested in National Geographic. Sure, I read that religiously, and yep. I remember reading it up until. Well, I've been reading it ever since, but I remember it was in the 70s was about the last time they ran an article in which they discovered something no one had ever seen. You know, they came across an Amazon tribe in the early 70s that had never seen people outside of their own tribe. And that's when the world was really, you know, new and adventurous and and, and the exploration of it was so exciting. Um, Now, you know, Google maps every square inch of it and a lot of that excitement has been you know, lost, but still the excitement of personal experience and even of reading about others' personal experiences is so, so essential to the human spirit, I think. So to me as a storyteller, and this may be, you know, this will not be the last thing I publish, I know that. This may be, you know, the sort of level at which I'm going to be most comfortable at this point in life is this kind of storytelling. Um, it's not as dramatic as youth culture storytelling, but it is still, you know, very, very, very wide and, and, and interesting and new. Well, Bob, we could go on and on and on, and you and I are going to have that. We're going to have to come back. I want to come back, have you back, and talk a little bit more about Wonderlust and talk about travel because there's so many more questions I want to talk about. about well, that, to do that. So we'll do it. So thanks for joining us. I appreciate it so much. 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being on All Business with Jeffrey Hazel right here on C-Suite Radio. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Okay, at the end of every interview, I like to talk about the things I learned. I tell you the one thing that was really clear, just like travel, you don't know where you're going to go. You're going to, hey, I'm going to go to this direction. And then when you get there, man, I didn't like that. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over here. I'll go over here. The path is never clear, especially when it comes to your career, especially when it comes to what you do. But the steps along the way will get you there. And I think that's the thing I learned. That's the takeaway I got today is while you're doing that, all that traveling, getting to where you want to go and be who you want to be, uh, it's good experience, but, and it might, and it might, it might help you. And it might not always help you as much as you think, but you know, no one can ever say, Hey, I'm going to go from point A to point B in our lives and our career. And usually it's point C or D or E or F or G and it keeps going. And that's what you're meant to do. And I had a great conversation with him. Hey, don't forget, I need your help. And the way I get your help is to tell other people about the show. And you can find us right here, All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on C-Suite Radio. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.